0: Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hi,
1: I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now, your next presentation with Canva Presentations.
0: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from DesignObserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with prolific design writer Stephen Heller about the concept of cool, about what brings life to packaging and logos. And about how he obtained erotic photographs from a Japanese artist when he
2: worked for a sex magazine. She would call on the phone and say, I have all these pictures for you, and uh, if you want me to come over and do something to you, I will. We needed the pictures because they were free. (laughs) Here's Debbie Millman.
1: If you type in Stephen Heller at Amazon.com, up comes over 130 books about design. It would appear that Stephen Heller is a publishing imprint. But no, he is a mere mortal, albeit a prolific and masterful author. For 33 years, he was an art director at the New York Times. He currently pens the visuals column for the New York Times Book Review and is the co-chair of the MFA Designer as Author at the School of Visual Arts. That makes me his colleague because I also teach at SVA in New York City, where we are recording this interview. Welcome to Design Matters, Steve. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Steve. This is your fourth appearance on Design Matters. That is now officially the record. Thank you for being back with us.
2: It was a short commute.
1: (laughs) Well, Steve, one of your most recent books is titled Pop, How Graphic Design Shapes Pop Culture And this amazing collection of essays is going to be the focus of our conversation today. But my first question is, why pop? How did you decide on the title?
2: Pop is uh, such a great word, right? It is a great word. Pop goes the weasel. Snap, crackle, pop. Pop culture. You know, pop, my pop, your pop, 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 soda pop. Pop music. So it's one of the the best words we have in, in English. Also... I am a big fan of, of pop culture and what I wanted to do with this book was uh, take essays that I'd written and some that I hadn't written but wanted to write and intersect the graphic design and more general design aspects with pop culture. What led what? What followed what?
1: Describe a typical day. In the life of Stephen Heller, when do you get up? What is the first thing that you do? When do you write? When do you do all the things that you do?
2: I wake up and then I do something that I really shouldn't admit to doing. Really? Really. Tell us. I take my Mac Air, a great invention. I unplug it. I go into the bathroom and I do a couple of blogs. (laughs) Is that
1: metaphoric?
2: (laughs) Well, you could say some of my stuff should be in the bathroom, but uh, <laughs> no, it's just a quiet place to uh, do it. When I was a kid, I used to study in high school Russian literature, and I would always read Togirnev or Tolstoy or Gogol in the bathroom. I'd either sit on the pot or lie on the floor, and there'd be the, the noise coming up the riser from other people in the building, and it felt comfortable, even though it was a cold floor. And reading Russian literature, you don't want to be too comfortable anyway.
1: Now, I believe that this is roundabout your 130th book, or are thereabouts? Roundabout.
2: I think it's like 135.
1: Do you remember your first book?
2: I remember my first book was not my first book. I did a book with john bader who is known for his diner paintings
1: okay and
2: his roadside culture art and he's a wonderful guy who lives in atlanta and we did a book together called gas food and lodging
1: so he brought you into his book deal then it wasn't your own personal
2: we he brought me into his world of art Okay. Because I had suggested or he had suggested – I forget what happened. But in any case, we sold the book to Abrams, but Abrams wanted their own uh, writer-designer. At that time, I was doing more designing than I was doing writing. So as a consolation prize, he introduced me to his agent, Sarah Jane Freeman, and um, she became mine. And um, – She took my first solo book, which was called Artists' Christmas Cards. Really? Yeah. Well, I tell everybody and and we tell our students at MFA Design that to be a designer as author or a designer as entrepreneur, you have to start with an autobiographical premise. The idea is everybody has some story to tell. There's some narrative that's a personal narrative. And uh, if you can figure out how to make it work in any kind of medium you may have a product so in my case I've always loved Christmas I even gave up an honorary doctorate because they were going to give it to me around Christmas time and I had to leave New York but Christmas in New York is the most wonderful time of all in life when I think of what heaven is it's just Christmas in New York In New York with bathrooms on every corner. Um, (laughs) And Starbucks. No Starbucks, no coffee. Not in in your head. Keeps you you awake. (laughs) Um, But I started contacting people who um, I knew would have great Christmas cards, artists all over the world. Some, Most of them were alive, like Charles Adams at the time and Ed Gorey at the time, Ed Sorrell, and a few of them were dead. I actually got Albert Einstein's Christmas card. How? Well, a friend of mine was a friend of Albert Einstein's and had one of his Christmas cards. In fact, he had stacks of people's Christmas cards that he had saved. In fact, he did his own. His name was Fritz Eichenberg and he was a very well-known wood engraver in the United States. And We were very good friends even though he was 50 years older than I. So he gave me that, and actually I cut it from the book because it wasn't as good as it should have been. I mean, he was great with relativity, but he wasn't <laughs> so great with the scissor. <laughs>
1: Ended up on the cutting room floor. Right. What did your Jewish parents think of your first book being about Christmas?
2: My Jewish parents are New York reformed Jews that hadn't been to a synagogue in ages. And they used to have a fake Christmas tree in the house. Okay. And I grew up with a fake one, which I really resented. So the minute I left home when I was 17 or 18, I bought a real Christmas tree. But I didn't decorate it because I thought decoration would be kind of sacrilege. <laughs> and in fact, I hung it from the ceiling of my apartment. How did you on manage that? Street. You know, in old apartments, they have chandelier hoods, you know, where the electrical is. Yes. And there was a little stick coming down and I just hung the top of the tree to it and let it dangle.
1: Let's talk about pop. How would you describe pop? Why this particular collection of essays?
2: Well, yeah, every so often, maybe every four or five years, I publish a collected works. I tend to write at least two articles a week or introductions for books or whatever, other than the large long form stuff that I do. And they are thematic in a way. If you look at the stuff that I write and break it down, you'll find that there are maybe four or five areas and they all come under the heading of pop culture. So when I sought to put essays together, I found that they were fitting into specific categories that were Related to pop,
1: now, I actually read in pop that when you started your career, you actually considered yourself a cartoonist, right. And then you describe that you realized that your cartoonist talents were limited very um, and then you became a graphic designer. But then you really decided that you were an art director, which is what you labeled yourself for thirty five years. After you left the book review, you considered new ways to describe yourself and tried graphic writer, ex-art director, para-designer, design empresario, and design consultant. You also tried interface engineer. Then you said that you considered design slut, but that was already taken. And so my question is here, by
2: who? I don't remember. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't even remember writing that.
1: Well, See, know, that's
2: I... the other reason I have anthologies, because I don't remember anything. I mean, I could write an essay almost verbatim that I wrote 10 years ago, and I won't remember.
1: Well, I actually learned quite a lot about you while reading pop, and I never knew that you actually worked for Interview Magazine in the early 70s, and that you even redesigned it. Yep. So tell us about that.
2: I was working for a magazine called Rock. And Rock was a kind of lowbrow, and I say lowbrow slash intellectual uh, music publication compared to Rolling Stone, which we would consider the highbrow. But Rock had some great writers and it covered some interesting subjects. But one of the ways we made money in addition to trying to sell advertising was we had a big typesetting machine and people would come and – Like in the old days of printing, when you would sell type and printing and throw in design for free as a lost leader, that's what we did. So they threw in me as the designer. So I designed tons of magazines and newspapers, and it was a lot of fun. And, you know, it wasn't like I was anonymous. I got credit as art director or designer. And Interview was one of those that came through the door. Bob Colacello and Glenn O'Brien, who I think are still involved to some degree with interview. Certainly, Colacello has become this cultural uh, maven and pundit, and O'Brien has been around the block many, many times. And of course, it was Andy Warhol's publication. So they came to me. They knew nothing about design, but they became the art directors. And I picked out typefaces, which were really terrible. Broadway
1: and Bussarama.
2: Broadway and Bussarama, my favorite combination. (laughs) Uh, And I used a lot of uh, Oxford rules, and uh, they picked the photographs, and we did the job. And I did it, I guess, for four issues or so.
1: Now, you said and you wrote that you never met Andy Warhol, but that his spirit was pervasive, like a big wigged phantom peering through the clouds.
2: That's good writing.
1: That is good writing. I love that line. How is it pervasive? What made it pervasive? Well, they kept
2: talking about Andy would like this and Andy would like that. And wouldn't Andy be interested in this? And Andy really loved Death in Venice. That was the big issue I did. That was my most satisfying issue of working, Death in Venice, which was really a depressing movie.
1: Oh, but it's an amazing movie. It's
2: an amazing movie and Dirk Bogart is amazing, but it's a very creepy film. But it offered some remarkable photographs because they were so graphic. Not in a pornographic way, but in a real graphic way. They were really well posed and it was like the whole movie was set up as a bunch of stills.
1: We well, have a wonderful picture of the character that played Dazio, right? In yeah. the essay about Death and Venice.
2: Right. And that was – interview then was what was called a quarterfold publication. So it was a tabloid and you closed it in half and you got a cover and a back cover and then you opened it and you got a second cover. So that's where he was.
1: After you left Interview, you went on to uh, Greener Pastures, you went on to Screw Magazine, another iconic publication, and in another chapter of Pop, you wrote that becoming a design icon is not an intention, but a byproduct. And I was wondering if you could talk about what you meant by that.
2: You don't set out to design something that is going to be for the ages, That happens or it doesn't happen. You don't set out to design something that is going to transcend all function and in its transcendence be uh, more than what it was. As a graphic designer or any kind of designer, you're designing for function. And you may inject a personality. You may inject an idiom. You may inject an accent. But uh, that's part of the the style mechanism that goes on. But it's not about creating an icon. There's iconography and then there's an icon.
1: I'm wondering, though, I I can't imagine – and this is just my surmising – but I can't imagine that when Andy Warhol was creating Interview that he had anything less than something iconic in his mind when he was doing it.
2: Well – you know, he he said the famous line, "You're famous for 15 minutes." Interview before I got onto it. I mean, there were a few issues before that that were really ugly. Uh, not that mine was beautiful, but it was better than it was. He was making a newspaper. What can be more ephemeral than that? You don't expect a newspaper to last. He was creating it in black and white. So black and white takes away all earthly reality. It makes it something totally synthetic. So I think what he was doing was just creating disposable Duchampian art. You know, he was trying to make stars, but he was making stars in a kind of sarcastic way. Eventually, it got the better of him. But all of his stars were kind of just fleeting stars. Some of them actually survived the uh, test of time. I mean, Lou Reed, for example. But I don't think he suspected that the magazine would last to this very day. I don't even know whether it's still called Andy Warhol's interview or not. But, uh, you know, putting his name on everything just meant it was kind of art. And it had his brand. He was a quintessential brand that he came out of branding. So why shouldn't he be?
1: I mean, the reason it was called Interview was because it was about stars interviewing other stars. And there was almost this voyeuristic allure to listening in on a conversation between two extremely accomplished people. That that, was the
2: brilliance of it.
1: And it struck me as interesting because you started off pop by stating that you prefer writing about the some things – as opposed to the some ones, right? And I actually feel the opposite. I prefer to talk to the some ones as opposed to the some things. I'm wondering why you feel that way.
2: Well, first of all, let me say that if you go onto my website, you'll find over a hundred interviews, I which know. is a fraction of the number that I've done over the course of twenty five years. So I do talk to people. I have always preferred to be something of a voyeur. I like the idea that we're in a booth where there's a glass separating me from other people. I was a bartender once, and I tended bar because it was great to stand on the other side of the bar and listen to people talking, but not have to be engaged with them if I didn't want to be. So in this case, what I'm basically saying is, I think in graphic design, it's the object that uh, is the star, And the star designers or the non-star designers are the mechanism by which these things are produced. That said, there are things called form givers. And so I've written two biographies. I've written long essays for two other biographies. And I have contracts for two more biographies. Uh, So it's not like I don't get involved with individuals. On the other hand, I'm not all that... Keen to get involved in somebody else 's life, I have a problem enough with my own. you know I, I joke about this, but uh, I say I prefer writing obituaries because the people don 't have anything to say to me afterwards <laughs> and you know it, it, particularly in in design and, and and particularly in graphic design, the notion of criticism has been avoided for many, many years. And now I co-founded with Alice Twemlow the Decrit program here at the School of Visual Arts so that we can open up the door to more critical writing and throw open the platform to many more people. But I used to write about individuals in a critical way and I'd run into them on the street and they'd basically say, I didn't know you hated me. And I've had many encounters like that. So, you know, getting involved with somebody's ego is not a pleasant engagement unless, of course, you're invested in that person and, you know, you take what comes.
1: Now, of of all your 135 books, the one searing absence is that of a memoir or a monograph or an autobiography. Do you ever see creating something like that?
2: Well— In one of my books, in Graphic Design Reader, there's a section called Memoir, and there are four or five essays that were going to go into a memoir of the 60s. I spoke to my agent about it, and she thought, this is cool. We should do that. And I wrote these essays, and after that, I got bored with myself. And I'm not saying this disingenuously. I just got bored with it. You know, There was a certain point in my life where all these amazing things were happening because I was in a cultural vortex. And it didn't matter that it was me. I just happened to be there and met a lot of great people and met a lot of weird people. In fact, one of the people that I met, I just was filmed for a documentary on this person. Her name is Yayoi Kusama. Do you know who she is? No, I don't. She's considered the greatest Japanese artist living. And she's a crazy person. She lives in a mental institution. She's having a big retrospective at the Tate next year. She's had retrospectives at MoMA. But I knew her as a kind of happening person who created fake orgies, photographed them, and gave us the photographs when I was working at Screw and the New York Review of Sex. And to me, she was just a Looney Tune. And I had written about her recently on my Daily Heller blog when I found out that there were all these things happening in this ironic way. I mean, here's somebody I knew way back when who is a cultural icon. Uh, So they asked me to go on camera and talk about how I engaged with her. And I won't go into it here on the... Why not? uh, Well, because this is a family show. No,
1: it's not. And now you're just teasing me.
2: Well, she would call on the phone and say... In an accent, she would say, I have all these pictures for you, and uh, if you want me to come over and do something to you, I will. We needed the pictures because they were free. You know, it's like Woody Allen's joke about his brother thinking he was a chicken. Well, uh, why didn't you commit him? He said, because we needed the eggs. We
1: needed the eggs.
2: Yeah. So it's like that. That's
1: how Annie Hollands. I love that line. That's wonderful.
2: So... uh, I met a lot of people at that particular juncture. Uh, I worked with Patty Smith.
1: Tell us about that because I know a little bit about it, and it's well, we what just I worked together at it a music magazine. At,
2: right? Yeah, we worked together at Rock. She was a writer. I was the art director, and um, she always used to say how she wanted to be a rock star, and she'd talk about Sam Shepard, who I was, I thought was the greatest playwright on the planet, uh, and I always wanted her to introduce me to him, and she never would, so I just thought she was lying as so many people did in those days. You know, it was like lying was a trend, a fashion, a style. And how is that
1: any different now?
2: I don't know, but I'm older now, and people don't lie as much. So at one point she gets fired, and I don't see her again. And then two, three years later, I used to work for the guy who ran um, uh, CBGB's, Hilly Crystal. He had a bar on the west side, and I used to design Hilly's Gazette. And, um... My girlfriend was one of his bartenders. When he opened up CBGB's, he invited me over, and I went, and it was so disgusting. The bathroom, particularly. I'd never be able to blog in there. Um, <laughs> it was, uh, I just never went back. And what's more, I didn't particularly care for that music. So, you know, a few years later, I see that uh, Patty is uh, not only playing at CBGB's, but she's got a big record out, and she's got a following you know then years and years later it turns out that patty's kid and my kid go to the same school in new york so i run into her and uh, i said something and she said oh yeah i remember you and what are you doing now and i said well i'm the art director of the book review and she said uh, you guys just gave me a bad review
1: <laughs> you can't get can't away, get from, away that. from anything and of
2: course she won the national book award for her memoir so Everything comes around, goes around, comes around, goes around.
1: It seems in reading pop and in thinking so much about what is cool and what isn't cool, and you write considerably about that in the book, it seems as if you view graphic design and illustration, satire and political art as building blocks of of popular culture. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about why you feel that those things in particular are so important to popular
0: culture.
2: Well, if we accept that popular culture is culture of the mass and it is something that pervades everything that we do, then those areas that you just mentioned are key, illustration is something that certainly in the 19th century in the 18th century and even before were the mass media of their time and the illustration was not only a reflection but a commentary on what was going on around the place where where they were created satire even more so it's important for every culture to have a satiric safety valve or you explode even the soviets at Their worst Stalinist time had Crocodile, which was a satiric magazine. Uh, And they knew that they needed that. You need the release. You need something. Even if what you're doing is using satire to demonize an enemy, at least make it funny. So that's very much about pop culture. Design is about what we put into our world, into our culture. Everything we have, everything we do is designed.
1: But being a a successful popular culturist, so to speak, or a successful graphic designer, or a successful brand consultant, it seems to me that it would be about knowing whether something is cool or whether it's not. And I'm really fascinated, sort of endlessly fascinated by opinions of what is cool and what is not, as if there really is any objective way to be able to qualify something as
2: cool or not. Well, first of all, to me, I use the term cool, and it came back into my parlance maybe eight years ago when I became friendly with Ed Schlossberg, and he would say at the end of everything, oh, cool. And he's a very intellectual, heady guy, and I thought, well, cool is a good way to end a sentence. It's a period, and it suggests something. It suggests you know, you, you agree with what somebody else has said. So the word cool I can dig, but um, – The notion of cool, I can't. There is that great scene in Hard Day's Night where George Harrison walks into this marketing room and there's a beautiful secretary behind the desk and this guy is talking about the shirts that uh, his uh, teen – representative, his teen spokesperson, like Miley Cyrus, is going to be promoting and this is going to be the marketing trend of the moment. And George Harrison's asked his opinion because they don't know he's a Beatle. They think he's just this guy who looks like a Beatle. And he says, so what do you think about these shirts? He says, I think they're grotty. And he says, no, that's not right. Susie, the teen spokesperson, is overjoyed with this he says well we turn off the sound and laugh at her and have a giggle you know and they kick him out of the office and then he looks on this chart this matrix and he says no 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 he's an anomaly it's not supposed to dip for another two months but don't renew susie's contract wow to me that's what cool is to me cool is kind of the opposite of being cool
1: But it's mutable. I mean, that's really what's so fascinating to me is the fact that what is cool is mutable and that there is no sort of time-honored resonance in what is cool and what isn't. But then
2: anything is cool. Good things can be cool. Bad things can be cool. I think cool is not a word that one can discuss. Platonically or Socratically, it's just this term that somebody came up with. I'd love to find the person and if they got royalties on the term, to substitute for something else. Approval matrix. Yeah, well, whatever. There are certain degrees of popularity and you have to be able to say why it's popular when, in fact, as Paul Rand used to say about uh, doing a job, you do it because instinctively you feel like you need to do it and then you make all these excuses why you've done it.
1: (laughs) You talk a lot about Paul Rand and pop. And another thing that I learned that I had absolutely no idea about was how he designed his own tombstone. Right. Tell us about that.
2: Well, he was an Orthodox Jew. When I found that out, I was really shocked, actually. I mean, I knew him for about 12 or 14 years. And when I found out that he prayed every morning in Did, an Orthodox a manner, with the Tchvillin and oh, everything, wow. I was kind of shocked. And I made it into a bit of a joke. So every time there was a Jewish high holiday, I would call him on the phone to see if he answered. And he would. And he I'd would? say,
1: Gotcha! That's the first rule. You can't answer the phone on, a, but, uh, on you know, a Jewish holiday.
2: Yeah, but everything is mutable, as you say. Oh,
1: yes.
2: So you make up your own rules as you go along, which is what I think is kind of cool. Uh,
1: <laughs>
2: but, um, so tell us about the tombstone. So in Jewish lore, as you know, you get your tombstone a year after you're buried. That way they make sure you're dead. And uh, when you go visit a tombstone, you put a stone to say you've been there. Personally, I'd like a salami sandwich. but uh, <laughs> as long as it's kosher. Right. But um, he had a friend design the stone, a designer. But he said what he wanted. He wanted it very simple. He didn't want any flourishes. He wanted it modernist. So there are two square cubes. One of the cubes has Hebrew lettering engraved in it. And the other cube says Paul Rand. I think it has his dates. I don't know. I have it in my um, Paul Rand biography. And the Paul Rand is in beautiful sans serif, and he specified that the rocks were not to be rocks that you just find on the ground, but they had to be polished, shiny black rocks. So if you go visit the tombstone in Connecticut, uh, there are all these, you know, kitschy tombstones around on this berm, and uh, on his, all around it are um, these shiny rocks,
1: you also wrote about Rand in a chapter about the Enron logo in pop. And you describe how Rand warned that logos are like rabbit's feet, imbued with mystical and magical properties, not always rooted in the rational. Do you agree with that?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, what else is it but a, a kind of mystical sign? There are so many of them, thousands of them. Some of them have lasted the test of time. And some of them are really representations of venality. Some of them are representations of beauty and love. And some of them are just there. But a logo is nothing more than what you put into it. And, uh, you know, the, the recent flap with the gap flap with the gap. Flap oh, I'm going to use gap. that. You know, it's so stupid. The logo worked for them. They come up with another logo. All these people get really upset and crowdsource uh, the logo and, and now they're not using the logo. You know, it's like who gives a damn? The fact of the matter is if that logo had been allowed to live, it would have gained whatever power or lost whatever power time would have bestowed upon it and success in business would have bestowed upon it and customers would have bestowed upon it.
1: What I was so surprised by was how quickly the mob mentality developed to somehow force the gap to go back to their old logo.
2: Well, it happened with Coca-Cola too. I used to read a lot of the old advertising trade magazines from the turn of the century for something I was writing. Actually, I was writing about racist imagery. And uh, in those magazines, they would talk about friendly trade characters. And they would talk about how these trade characters would be invited into the home, mostly for women, and they were unthreatening. You know, they provided the product, the service, whatever it was, and you could embrace them. So you could embrace Aunt Jemima. You could embrace the
1: Uncle Ben, Uncle
2: ben and uh, Armor Meat Man and all of these things in a safe environment. And so they were friendly. If somebody tried to change that, you know, you can't let a friend disappear. But was the Gap logo that much of a friend? I doubt it.
1: Do you feel that it was a mistake for the Gap to go back to their old logo and respond so quickly in the way that they did?
2: Well, I think it was stupid, but I don't think it was a mistake. They did what they had to do. Some so-called experts said, let's not fan the fires. I don't think this was such a a big deal. But it does go to the issue of rabbit's feet, which if not washed can smell.
1: You also tell a a really interesting story in Pop about Walter Dorwin Teague. And his design of the Kodak packaging, and you described Teague as someone that saw modernism as a tool for creating auras that mythologized products and used art as a means to trigger a Do you feel that that's a bad thing?
2: I wouldn't give it a value judgment like that. If it's done for evil, it's a bad thing. If it's done for good, it's a good thing. If it's done for a package for a company, it's an expected thing.
1: And do you think that that constructed allure or that specificity to seduce is something that should be accepted by consumers? Do you feel yeah, like It's that?
2: natural. It's like, you know, birds have coloration to attract their mates. I mean, that's what it all is. It's makeup.
1: But this is constructed. It's very specifically constructed.
2: Yeah. So it's not as natural as a bird. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's, it's the same principle. And what are you going to do? Remember years ago when they made that so-called generic packaging and in the supermarket, they had an area where it was just white and black? Mm-hmm. It was pretty disgusting. You couldn't trust the package. You couldn't feel any connection with it. The fact of the matter is we do love our stuff. And we do love things and we like to be connected to things. And part of that is the designer's job to make you feel connected.
1: And so do you think that that connection allows you to feel better about who you are because you're somehow among like-minded people that have similar values or similar beliefs? I mean, one of the big issues that I contend with on a daily basis is the idea that brands are helping somebody make them feel better about who they are.
2: Yeah, I think that's kind of bullshit. But
1: Why? Why do you think that's kind of bullshit?
2: Well, because the only way you're going to feel better about who you are is if you have a good mental state. I'll backtrack and say if you're content to feel good about yourself because you have a really good pair of shoes and you, uh, you know, consume healthy foods that are well packaged, then it's fine and dandy. And then that supports that basic feeling. But I don't think it should give you the feeling. I mean, it's kind of like Brave New World with Soma, you know. <laughs> yeah. That's what Aldous Huxley was was saying, you know, and he wrote a, a subsequent book called Brave New World Revisited, which was all about the subconscious and subliminal advertising and codes that come into our mind and how that can be dangerous. In our particular culture, you know, it's not as overtly venal as it would be in a totalitarian regime where the whole aim of it is to mind control well we're mind controlled too in many ways and i think we just have to be aware of it the educated consumer is not one that knows this price is better than that price the educated consumer the educated citizen is one that knows um, that there are all these things that go into the product and then they can make a choice. Then they can make a decision to buy into it or not buy into it, go to another brand. I mean that's why I think in this part of the world, in this part of uh, the last you know, years of the 20th century and now beginning of the 21st, people are more skeptical. Except with each generation, you have to reteach the skepticism. Why? Because it doesn't get passed down genetically. You know, when William Morris started the arts and crafts movement, he was totally skeptical of industrialization. Now, maybe overly so, maybe too much of a reactionary, although what he did led to the Bauhaus. But... You know, the next generation wasn't going to be as particular as that. And they were, as the generations progressed, they would lose their disheartening feelings about industrialization and embody it and call it something else and just say this is life. And that's what it is. I mean, that's what evolution, you know, technical, industrial, mechanical evolution is. It's about going from one step to another and you become adaptive.
1: But do you think that in our path to adapt, we are accepting more and more unessential things that we deem as essential in our lives?
2: Well, you know, I can go both ways on this. I mean, there are some things that we like simply because we like them and they're not essential. That's okay. You know, that's part of our personalities. That's part of our needs. And there are lots of things that we need that are essential. What I like to do is kind of make a chart for myself. What is it that... I want that is essential, what is it that I want that's not essential, and how can I make the unessential stuff essential? And that's why I write books. That's
1: a great answer. One of the other areas of your life where you're tremendously prolific is in teaching. And you have not only 135 books to your name, but you've also... Founded or co-founded four graduate programs at the School of Visual Arts, Designer as Author, Design Criticism, Interaction, and the program that you invited me to co-found, the Masters in Branding. I guess you only like to do things in bulk, Steve.
2: (laughs) Yeah, bulk is good.
1: (laughs) Any more plans for programs? the the
2: first program that I co-founded with Lita Tellerico was the MFA designer as author. The next one, many years later, was social documentary film with Mara Chemaev. Oh, yes. So, and that was because of two things. One, David Rhodes, who's the president of the School of Visual Arts and an amazing guy, wants to do things that are socially engaging and socially responsible. And that was my kind of, shall we say, gift. The second one was design criticism because that's something I always wanted to do. And I guess that was his gift to me and Alice Twemlow, Liz Danzico, who runs Interaction Design, in a weird way, that's a no-brainer. We needed to do that, and I was so fortunate to have worked with Liz as she was the managing editor of AIGA Voice, and I'm the editor. Uh, and, and she's just an amazing individual, and as are you. It was, it was also a no-brainer. So uh, I like doing things that are no-brainers because I can't waste any more brain power.
1: You said when you first started designer as author that graphic designers have the opportunity to be authors in both the metaphoric as well as the practical sense of the word. And I'm wondering if that is also why you teach, to be able to bring both the metaphoric and the practical to all your students. And ultimately, I guess the question here is why teach?
2: Well, the answer is I don't teach. Quite specifically, I lecture, and there really is a difference between teaching and lecturing. Now, you can say it's one and the same because when you lecture, you impart information and people will absorb that information, but that's a kind of passive way of teaching. An active way of teaching is getting into the trenches and making sure that this knowledge that you have is imparted in such a way that it can then be transferred, interpreted, uh, and acted upon, and in the designer is author program, we have amazing teachers, Milton Glazer, uh, Warren Lear, Scott Stoll, Stefan Sagmeister, Gail Anderson, many, many people who I just have the utmost respect for because they can really do that teaching, which I don't have the patience for. I couldn't do it. So why am I involved in this field, which is a, the broader question, is I just love seeing what students come up with. And I really take a great deal of joy, as do you, in them becoming successful and and their lives being changed. And if I could have a little part of that life-changing experience, that makes my life a little more valuable to me. So it's a schmaltzy way of explaining it, but You know, it's a great thing. And it's not unlike being an art director. I mean, I brought a lot of illustrators into a publishing world, and some of them took off and have really exciting careers now, and some of them didn't.
1: Well, in Pop, you talk about what the best possible outcome of teaching can be, and it's one of the most, I think, significant lines in the book. It was for me in any case. And and you say that teaching is when you are able to make the most insignificant thing viewed as significant. And I think that one of the great, great talents that you've brought to everything that you do is showing the world how both significant and insignificant things can be viewed in the most powerful and significant way. And Thank you for doing that for us, Steve. Thank you. And thank you for being here today.
2: It's always a joy. Are we going to do number five? Oh, absolutely. Are you kidding? Tomorrow? I envision
1: 72. Oh, okay. (laughs) You can find out more about Stephen Heller at hellerbooks.com. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.